What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from Austin, Texas during the South by Southwest Festival and Conference. Check out this amazing annual get-together for folks in tech, music, and film at sxsw.com. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is developer Matt Giamanco. Matt is a Senior Director of Development at Avalon Bay Communities, the real estate investment trust that acquires, develops, redevelops, and manages apartment communities across the nation, totaling over 86,000 units nationwide. Matt is based in their New Jersey office and is part of the development team focused on North and Central New Jersey. He previously worked at Goldman Sachs Real Estate Investment Group and began his career at Ernst & Young in their Transactions Real Estate Group. He is a graduate of Columbia Business School, just like me, and Penn State. Uh, we will be talking about the Avalon Princeton Thanet Circle Project, a new construction apartment community in Princeton, New Jersey. More broadly, we will learn about the behind-the-scenes process of how major developers like Avalon Bay choose where to develop and then how they go about building. So thank you so much for being here with us, Matt. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Matt, you're a former soccer player. Tell us about the position that you played and the characteristics and the personality traits that you think go along with it. Yes, a, a long and storied uh, soccer career, I may say, which ended very abruptly at 17 years old, uh, <laughs> not by injury, but more by uh, lack of skills. But yeah, thanks. So yeah, I was a uh, I was an outside winger back in my day. So I uh, I was pretty versatile. If I were to build up my skills a little bit, I was I could play on the right or left. I could cross pretty well uh, with either foot, and I was just really running up and down the flank all day long. Uh, putting in mediocre crosses for for as as good of my uh, as good as I could for my teammates, but I tried to do it all. I was also very very uh, strong on defense. I was always willing to get back, cover our bases, and help my team try to protect the goal. So that was really my strong suit, which is probably why I didn't score all that much, uh, just a handful. But uh, I do miss it quite a bit. I wish I played it a little bit more, but it's nice to see my daughter starting to pick it up a little bit too, uh, and hopefully they're able to go a little bit farther in their careers than dad was. Excellent. So the things that I heard, you are very good at observation, very good at working with a team, and you are very astute at uh, risk mitigation. 
So I'm thinking all of those things uh, served you well as you transitioned to a career in financial services. Uh, so help our listeners understand uh, what you did at Ernst & Young and Goldman Sachs and how that prepared you to move into development. Sure. So I graduated from Penn State in 2007 with a finance degree. And while I was uh, very well versed in, you know, the financial realm, the the area that really stuck out to me during my time at Penn State was real estate. In particular, there was a real estate finance class that really got my brain uh, churning and really made me highly interested in the subject. And so that's where I focused my, my job efforts and was fortunate enough to land at Ernst & Young in their New York City Times Square office in the Transactions mm -hmm. Real Estate Group, which in 2007 was focused mostly on uh, valuation review and advisory efforts for large private equity and banking clients. And obviously that changed quite a bit in 2008 when, uh, when everything in the world uh, blew up pretty much from an economic standpoint where we had to pivot a lot and a lot of our services became as you just said before, risk mitigation and uh, uh, and loss mitigation, especially for a lot of the same clients or, or new clients who are trying to work themselves out. So while we were still doing a lot of the valuation reviews and a lot of the basic underwriting, real estate underwriting efforts, we pivoted a lot to a lot more restructuring and um, different types of valuation exercises for our banking clients in particular, where they had real estate loan portfolios that were going south and they had no idea where the bottom might be or how to get themselves out of it, quite frankly, whether or not it's to try and put money in to, to build something up, to sell out now at a fire sale. And so we looked at a number of portfolios and a number of assets for various clients trying to figure out the best course of action for what they should do. And what was pretty, pretty tumultuous time from 2000 late 2008 to really all the way through the time I was there in, in 2011 before I left for business school. So it sounds like the skills that you uh, learned in that experience are likely useful again in the latest economic tumult because of the COVID virus, but in this case, now on the developer side, help us understand from your perspective as a developer, what are the most important things that um, you were able to do or you able to execute on in order to Steelership during the, the last two years of economic tumult. Yeah, for sure. You know, <laughs> learning on the fly and flexibility is pretty key mm -hmm. because you have to, in those situations, both COVID and in the Great Recession of 2008-9, you have to remind yourself that while people have been in the industry a while may have similar experiences, nothing is quite like the crisis you're in at that very moment. Mm -hmm. So 2008-2009, no one knew exactly what was going on, and it was really... You know, I was kind of at the same place where trying to learn about real estate, learn about the industry, learn about the right and the wrong way to do things mm -hmm. while everyone's, you know, losing their shirts, quite frankly, and trying to figure out the right way to exit these assets or monetize the portfolio or, or find a way through with their business model. COVID in particular, while very different from the economics of what happened during the Great Recession, especially considering how quick and how volatile the the bounce was from COVID, mm -hmm. where it was a very severe drop, very severe incline. You know, at the beginning of that drop, no one quite knew what that would be. I'm sure you and I, like a lot of people, you know, thought we'd be back to work in May of 2020. No problem. We'd, we'd work through the sniffles and everything would be okay. And yet here we are going on two, two years, years later. <laughs> it's better for sure, but never going to be the same ever again. 
And so the skills that I learned during that, that crunch time in Ernst & Young, when I was obviously putting my head down and trying to do my best for my team there, uh, are very well suited here where, you know, we were in the middle of a number of projects at Avalon Bay at that time, some of which were under construction, some of which were undergoing the entitlement process. Others were new deals that we had just signed up or gotten under contract. Others were new pursuits that we were chasing, which the metrics changed overnight, quite frankly. And the flexibility to adapt in all of those situations to manage what the risk profile was and try to make calculated long-term risk mitigation decisions was really critical. And there's a lot of different ways that can be done in a lot of different situations that I'm, I'm thinking of now that would have to require that kind of thought where you're, you're really not sure how the next few weeks, months, or years are going to look. But what can you do in that moment to, to manage the risk profile of the deals you're working on? What can you try to keep moving forward? Or what do you stall on and wait and try to be patient on to try to make the, the next decision? It was a, it's a difficult task, especially early on in COVID when, when no one really knew how to handle you know, what the virus was going to do, both on new deals and, and you know, legacy deals going forward. Yeah, and I think what I would imagine is there's a dual difficulty uh, in this particular instance of not uh, of having to deal not only with the financial distress but also the the healthcare and the health aspects that you as a property owner and developer are responsible for, not only for your residential and commercial tenants but also perhaps for your maintenance staff and construction workers as well. A hundred percent. And you know, while those aren't my my key functions day to day, it was certainly working in very close proximity to our personnel, you know, our operations team nationally really did a, a heroic job of, of stabilizing the ship and trying to figure out the right way forward and increasing, you know, whatever you could think of, right? Getting more PPE on site, sanitizing the community safely, trying to set resident protocols, trying to help residents who clearly were going through a lot. I mean, we had a number mm-hmm. of residents, obviously, in two years. I went through some some period of COVID. And then, like you said, you know, the other critical factor was on the construction side, which is a little closer to what I do on a day-to-day where, you know, we had projects that were purposely slowed by Avalon mm-hmm. Bay as we tried to weigh the situation. We had those, like the one we had under construction in New Jersey, where it was stopped by the government for a good mm-hmm. six to eight weeks. And so how do you manage that? Both how do you manage the stopping process and then how do you manage the ramp up again? The the government actually let you off the leash and said, okay, you can build, but, you know, all the new protocols are in place, you know, local inspectors all of a sudden became very cautious and wouldn't be, wouldn't allow other people in the building when they were completing their inspections. So your, your timeframe for development and construction at that time changed dramatically. Thankfully, it's gotten quite a bit better since then. But again, it's all about managing the risks you can and trying to control the course as best you think you are able to with the knowledge you have on that day, because you know it's going to change tomorrow. Yeah. So I think that that's going to be a really good transition to the project that we're focusing on, which is at Bennett Circle. So it's located in Princeton, New Jersey. Tell us about the area and the site specifically. Absolutely. So Princeton is obviously a globally well-known town, mostly due to the location of Princeton University being there for a couple hundred years. It's a beautiful, picturesque example of what I think, you know, the best of suburban New Jersey has to offer. It's a very affluent town. It's got beautiful park settings, a beautiful downtown, a very walkable and bikeable environment. 
just part of the reason we love it so much, as do many, many people. And quite frankly, it's just a fantastic location because it's got that education base. It's also got a strong corporate base. There's a number of other uh, larger, not necessarily big Fortune 500 in Princeton, but there are neighboring Fortune 500 companies in a lot of parts of central New Jersey, specifically related to the pharmaceutical industry, which is well known in, in, in New Jersey. And, um, you know, quite frankly, it's just the kind of place that is drawing both families who want to raise their young children here because of the great school system, not just the university, but I'm talking about the public school system, the private school systems that exist here, the retail walkability, the restaurants, you know, all of those collective things that are really tantamount, I think, to a, to a great suburban environment, all of those Princeton has. So given how developed this area is already and how expensive it is, I think a particularly interesting thing for us to dive into is how you actually acquire the site and what the entitlements process actually was like. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, you mentioned it. it is, Princeton is an affluent town and a very desirable town, which makes it you know, difficult to, to enter. It's a densely populated area, but you have median home values that approach a million dollars, quite frankly, in town, which depending on where you look at it, you know, that, that's a difficult statistic to, to wrap your head around. But that's part of why we're drawn here, because we feel very strongly that the lack of existing rental housing is an opportunity, uh, not just for us, but really an opportunity for the town. Because when you have median home prices of a million dollars, you're not going to have a lot of young couples or young couples, dual income, no children, or yeah. dual income with children um, that can afford to be here. And I think filling that upper middle market, I'll call it, I want to see if it's even a middle market, but filling that yeah. portion of the market that can be served by products other than the typical quarter acre single family home that exists in town is a really great opportunity. So this deal came across our lap. It was actually being marketed by a brokerage firm first, who is selling it on behalf of a bank who had mm -hmm. taken the property under foreclosure. To probably back up and note, this property is 15 acres plus or minus, but it was previously home to 110,000, excuse me, by two separate 55,000 square foot, 110,000 total, 1980s vintage, lovely looking, you know, brick office buildings, three-story suburban mm -hmm. office location, completely isolated from any kind of other corporate office park. So not exactly the highest and best use, I would say, going forward. Hence why the bank had control of it again, because it was essentially vacant. So the private equity firm that bought it, we actually stayed in touch with the broker because they were, the bank was looking for a quick sale. Mm -hmm. It's not quite the business that Avalon Bay typically does. We're not typically uh, land bankers where we buy and hold land, hoping for the entitlements to happen. We're a little mm -hmm. more more cautious with that. And we typically look to buy things on a contingent basis where we can go under contract with someone, give ourselves a, a decent period of time to get the approvals in place that we want, and then close on the property with those approvals in hand. So we were able to come to an agreement with our seller who was very amicable to that arrangement. Um, again, our track record in New Jersey speaks for itself. And I think that's why they put their trust and their faith in us. And certainly mm -hmm. the brokerage team uh, put in a good word for us too. And so we were able to enter into a contract at a time where Princeton was actually looking to solve their affordable housing equation in town. 
we don't have time. It's a whole other separate podcast for us to run through New Jersey's affordable housing <laughs> mechanisms and by which that, uh, that opportunity has come through. I would encourage your listeners to research and do their homework. But basically every town, most towns in New Jersey, north of 300 towns in New Jersey have to come up with their affordable housing plans, which mm-hmm. they go through the process of creating the opportunity to actually generate affordable housing in town so that mm-hmm. hopefully towns avoid the more exclusionary aspect of zoning most of their residential areas just for single family homes. Um, Cause that's obviously a problem and, and has historically been an issue here in the suburbs. And that's obviously what the, uh, you know, it's called the Mount Laurel doctrine, the, the affordable housing situation New Jersey is trying to approach. And so we were able to talk to Princeton at a time where they had the outlines of a plan, but it wasn't quite solidified. And they were still looking for a number of projects by which to fulfill the opportunity to create more affordable housing in town. And we met them at a great time where we were able to go to them with this site and say, this is a this is a nice sandbox we have here. This is 15 acres infill, already disturbed, existing office. This is not, you know, purely wooded forested land. I mean, this is the type of thing that towns, especially in the suburbs, should want to redevelop. They should want to expand their rateable base and find these types of opportunities to create housing environments environments mm-hmm. where they wouldn't have otherwise been previously. And so through a number of negotiations over, over many months, you know, in meeting with uh, various council people and staff at Princeton, and really by listening to them in terms of not just, you know, what we think could work here, but what they have a need for in town is how we were able to craft the overall strategy of, of what we accomplished here. So what we have on this site is not just an Avalon Bay community, but we actually have a neighboring 100% senior affordable project, which is being developed by Pearl Development, P-I-R-H-L, who is a, a national developer based in Cleveland, but they have local New Jersey operations here, and they're primarily focused on affordable housing. And so when we when we heard from the town that a real need from them was not just family affordable rentals, but in particular, they're really concerned about the senior population in Princeton, who lives on a fixed income, who doesn't have a place to go and is continually, you know, in, in New Jersey, the affordable housing system is, is really done by a lottery. So it's mm-hmm. it's not a guarantee by any means for people who could fit the bill and live in an affordable unit that they get to go there. And especially on the senior end, they lose out a lot of times when a lot of the family rentals are geared towards two and three bedroom units. So when Princeton said that, and we were able to craft a way to sculpt the site design to carve out two acres more or less that we could essentially convey to the town at no cost for them to help per- perpetuate a affordable housing development with Pearl. And we still had enough room to fit 221 units at our community with a mix of product types. It was it really was a win-win across all dimensions because, because what we ended up having is a vibrant, diverse, mixed living environment across the board with affordable senior rentals. We have multiple products, which I can dive into you know, shortly here, that accommodate multiple demographics across the spectrum that don't always have a, you know, we, th- those products don't tend to exist in a lot of suburban towns, especially in a town like Princeton. And so we were really happy to bring that together and get all of our approvals in place. And then ultimately by the end of the contingent time period, we were able to close and start construction on the project late last year in 2021. That's terrific. Uh, and a few things I want to mention for our listeners is 
Last month, we had the opportunity to talk to Kobe Lefkowitz, uh, the uh, managing partner at Backyard, uh, which is a small-scale housing developer, infill developer in California. And in that conversation, we spoke quite a bit about California's uh, decision to effectively, or it's, I believe it's still in the works, it hasn't been finally signed yet, uh, to outlaw single-family home zoning in the state of California. So uh, that, I think, is one very audacious uh, path to go down, and I'm sure we'll include many lawsuits uh, along the way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think the uh, the idea that something different has to happen is certainly afoot. And I think that what you described as these, this partnership between the city and two different developers uh, sounds like a very interesting uh, solution. And in addition, you mentioned there was a number of players in this process. Are you able to mention the, the broker, the seller, the other parties as well? Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the broker was a team from CBRE mm-hmm. in our local market. Our seller was actually a, an entity of uh, CABR or K-A-B-R, which is a private equity investor uh, located mm-hmm. in North Jersey. Uh, they invest nationally, however, and they are, uh, again, a, a great partner to have in this situation because they understand the real estate business. They understand you know, how it works and what it would take. And we kept a very transparent line of communication with them along the way in terms of how things were shaking out and you know, where our contract was going to land in terms of the number of units we were going to achieve. And, and all of that, I think, was it was just a perfect kind of partner for someone like us to have who needs the time and the space, quite frankly, to, uh, to do what mm-hmm. we do well and you know, achieve these entitlements. Excellent. And we'll actually having Adam Altman, who is the, uh, the founding partner of Caber Group, on the show next season. So season three. Wonderful segue. Nicely done. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's dive into more of the details of the development strategy. And let's talk about numbers along the way. And I know that there's a lot of terms that are often used in affordable housing, like um, area median income. And just make sure to include some of that details uh, so our, dis- our listeners are, are aware of what that, what that is. Sure. So by way of overall background, the project as it stands today and as, as is approved is on the Avalon Bay side, a 221-unit inclusionary rental project, meaning that there is a component of affordable housing actually located within our community. Those units are deed restricted for a period of 30 years. They stay on the books for a long time, and we're able to work with an affordable housing agency to continually provide those units for rent should they ever become vacant once they're leased up. We have a mix of product types at the community, which is something we really strive for, especially in our suburban markets. We, so we have a, a larger uh, four-story elevator building. We have two separate, we call them stacked flats, but separate three-story walk-up buildings with a smaller mm-hmm. component of 24 and 39 units. And then we actually have a number of rental townhomes. And townhomes, in this case, for your listeners, is not a form of ownership, which a lot of people sometimes confuse it as. Mm-hmm. But when I say townhome, I actually mean a multi-level style of living in this case, it's inclusive of a parking garage, a single car mm-hmm. parking garage or a double car if they're a larger unit, whereby residents can live in a townhome just like they would for any of the for sale builders, with the exception that they're renting from us and we continue to own the unit. But it's a really great product type that goes without saying, post-COVID, the interest has picked up tremendously across the board um, throughout our entire suburban portfolio, which had its own uh, tailwinds coming from COVID. but. The larger format of these units, they tend to be 16 to 2,000, 1,600 to 2,000 square feet. 
again, mm -hmm. with an integral garage that is just for the resident. They're really mm -hmm. unique and, and not a lot of people have built them previously in the state of New Jersey. Avalon Bay has done it a couple times, but we really enjoy it because it, it just provides a, those three products I mentioned provide a real diverse list of demographics and income levels and the type mm -hmm. of renters you're going to get. You have everything from studio units for your young professional up to these two and three bedroom townhome units, which quite frankly are do really well with uh, with our kind of empty nester demographic, the early empty mm -hmm. nester demographic who's okay yeah. with the stairs and really wants their garage and their two bedroom den so they can work from home and they have enough space for when the kids and the grandkids come there. Um, it's really that perfect product type for them. And, and we know from experience having built in Princeton before, because we do have an existing asset in Princeton, mm -hmm. right on Witherspoon Street that was built in 2016, we had a significant proportion, more than a third of our initial lease up was from people who already lived in Princeton. And so that speaks to the kind of demand drivers that the town has, because people who have lived here for 20, 30, 40 years, don't want to pay the property taxes anymore, don't want to mow their own lawn, really still want to be here and really believe in mm -hmm. the town and they really want to walk and bike to places. And so having yeah. multiple products for people like them and the younger professionals and the younger families who want to find a foothold into the town, mm -hmm. that's what those multiple products are able to allow us to achieve and provide to this market. And then separate and apart, as I mentioned at the top, the two acres kind of in the middle of the site is being developed by Pearl as a 100% senior affordable rental project. So there's a couple of terms in there. Uh, one, it's 80 units large. Mm -hmm. Two, it is being developed purely for seniors, and that's defined in New Jersey as those 55. And Correct. So it's a deed-restricted product, which is mostly ones with a couple two-bedroom units, but that is specifically geared towards affordable residents who wish to live in that type of community. It's another four-story elevator building, again, servicing that clientele, which does tend to be uh, very favorable at the elevator. And it's, it's being built by someone, quite frankly, who specializes in that type of affordable housing and provides a really specific set of programs and design guidelines and support uh, for those residents that Avalon Bay doesn't normally do. We, Avalon Bay, I forgot to mention, also have 11 affordable units in our own community. And that's a mix of what I'll call more typical family rental units, in addition to five additional units that we are developing specifically for to work with an outside agency in terms of uh, potential special needs housing for kind of older adults who may have autism, for example. And we're, we're mm -hmm. searching for providers right now to kind of help us fill that gap as well. So there's a whole mix of affordable housing at this community that is, that is integrated within the community. And that's really the best aspect of it, right? My units are interspersed throughout the community. Pearl's development is right next door. So the town was able to achieve if you look at the metrics of the total development, over a 30% affordable set aside, if you look at you know the 300 or so units that are there, which is mm -hmm. not something, as you know, that most developers can afford or even entertain mm -hmm. because in New Jersey, those metrics are very, very difficult to, to underwrite at that level. You know, the typical affordable set aside for rentals in New Jersey is 15%, for sale is 20. So the town's looking at this saying, well, we get affordable housing for seniors, one. Two, we fulfill our affordable housing obligation at a greater level than we could have if it were just a standalone development. And we get this inclusionary housing in the Avalon Bay market rate building. You know, again, it's a lot of boxes were checked, and I think a lot of good was achieved in the way we were able to integrate that, that mixed 
design, that mixed income level design in what we have in the communities. So walk our listeners through this project in terms of what they'd be seeing um, as they, they drive up or they, they walk up and give us a taste of like the, the finishes and like the layouts and things like that. Sure. So when you come into the community, you'd be making a left onto the road called Thanet Circle, which, again, I, I lived in and around Princeton for mm-hmm. most of my life. I never knew these buildings were back there because they are tucked in a old school cul-de-sac 1980s vintage office building that was heavily wooded at the street. So you actually couldn't see back there. And there was a row of residential homes on the other side. So now with the way our community is laid out, you can actually, when you make the left, you'll see just as you come into the community, the first set of the the first kind of townhome node or Mm townhome neighborhood coming up on the left. And then as you come up to the circle, you see our clubhouse that's facing Mm -hmm front and center, a little bit center right, if I had to be honest. And then uh, Pearl's development would be at the, call it nine o'clock, 10 o'clock position on the circle. Again, this kind of old school cul-de-sac development, especially for an office building, is, it was very odd and bizarre, very interesting, yeah. very bizarre. So that's why we, we did it. We tried to do a thoughtful job of trying to connect and bring it out to the street a little bit and make it a little bit more visible from what we could. There's obviously some environmental concerns and other things and you don't just want to you know make way for it just to make people see it but mm-hmm. i think the visibility was a key aspect for people who feel like they have a sense of arrival but we're also using that secluded nature a little bit to our advantage right people people do sometimes want to come home to a more quiet secluded environment and we have a we have a number of residential neighbors around us that we're also being sensitive to there's a residential uh, single family neighborhood out front there's a residential townhome neighborhood, a for sale townhome neighborhood that's just kind of across the creek and over to our east. So that's why we wanted to be sensitive to laying out the lower density townhome product in locations that was more proximate to the existing residential neighborhood. And the higher, more dense product is located a little bit closer to the rear of the site so that it's, again, not as not as upfront where it faces on Turkey Road. And so the clubhouse is there, and then the four-story buildings wrap behind it. We have another townhome neighborhood over to the right, and there's a ring road that circles throughout the entire community for easy circulation of both mm-hmm. our residents and also for emergency services and trash and all the things that we need to maintain the community. Fronted by the clubhouse, and then if you go around, around the clubhouse to the right, we have another townhome neighborhood, again, that's facing our residential neighbors. There's kind of like product to looking at like product, right, to kind of help the scale and the visual interest of those, the scale and the visual nature of the communities that are facing the residential neighbors. So they're not, you know, necessarily all, uh, you know, looking at something that might be a little bit taller than them. So we take all of that into consideration in addition to maintenance operations, you know, lease up operations, all those things that a long term property manager like Avalon Bay has to take into account. It's really not mm-hmm. just as simple as plopping 200 units in the community and, and saying it works because it fits and you have the acreage. There's a lot more a lot more to that and a lot more thoughtful exercises that have to go into that site design aspect. So speaking of thoughtful exercise, it's such a complex project. The financing for this project was also very complex. So help us understand what the money story was behind this project. Sure. So, you know, Avalon Bay developers have a, a very fortunate position in that we uh, we don't have to go to a bank for mm-hmm. most of our projects, right? We finance almost all of our projects. I'm not going to say all of them, but almost all off of our corporate balance sheet, which, you know, is helpful, but also is a pretty strenuous internal process as well, right? Because mm-hmm. we are pretty diligent with how we spend our shareholders' capital. 
and very thoughtful about how we try to outlay that. So we have to put in a lot of effort and due diligence up front before we're able to really get out of our due diligence period in our contracts to ensure that we're approaching the development right, the right way, understanding the risks and managing that process throughout, throughout the years that it takes to get something done in New Jersey. So for the Avalon Bay portion, we were financed as we typically are for all of our construction off of the corporate balance sheet. Mm-hmm. The Pearl project next door to us, that was a 100% affordable housing project, which comes with a whole host of other difficulties in terms of how you put that capital stack together, right? So there's yep. tax credit financing both at the state and the federal level. There's other local state benefits that they have to uh, sometimes pursue. But in this case, what we were able to do with Princeton, who was very supportive of this again because of all of the benefits coming to them, is that we said because we are conveying and ultimately and completing the initial you know, site clearance and demolition for the affordable housing, we're giving up two acres of our land, right? So the the benefit to us is that the site was actually declared an area in need of redevelopment, which is a specific term in New Jersey, and we don't have to get into the nuts and bolts of that. But ultimately, that opened up the way for a, a separate redevelopment plan, which kind of crafted the zoning standards for this site, and a redevelopment agreement whereby... Avalon Bay receives a, uh, we have a, a financial agreement where we mm-hmm. come to terms with Princeton, where instead of paying the typical ad valorem taxes, we're paying a percentage of our gross revenue that we generate on the community for the next 30 years. When you do a redevelopment designation, you're saying this site, but for this redevelopment, would not be redeveloped, right? It would stay mm-hmm. as an obsolete, vacant, suburban office complex. And so to facilitate that, it's called a payment in lieu of taxes, but that term, I really don't like that term because we are paying taxes. You're just paying a different yes. amount. Yes, it's lower, but the municipality is getting that benefit of having a, a greater proportion come to them. And so our financial agreement is actually funding a good portion of the affordable housing development, right? Because our mm-hmm. tax dollars from that financial agreement are going right over next door and helping Princeton facilitate the 80-unit senior affordable job, which was, again, a critical component of that. And again, the town's protected because the better I do owning and managing and renting the Avalon Bay rental community, the more money that's going into the town. And that's mm-hmm. for a period of, of 30 years. So it's it's no small no small thing for the municipality to have those kinds of benefits accrue to them. And again, it facilitates these type of unique, multifaceted solutions that wouldn't otherwise come if it were just kind of a simple rezoning effort. Uh, it was complicated. It obviously took a lot of time and negotiating and you know a lot of public meetings because it's not as straightforward as a typical rezoning but i think the benefits are going to be huge for something like this in princeton quite frankly for years to come i think the expression that you use that's really important um, for folks to understand is but for and that essentially is the the means by which you form a rationale or a reason for all public financing programs Um, but for these programs, then this development would not happen. For for Redist, uh, the technology company that I'm the CEO of, uh, we're doing eight projects across New York and New Jersey right now, and that essentially uh, forms the basis of the the strategies that we make. But for this set of public financing programs that we're uh, reviewing and applying for on behalf of our clients, they wouldn't be building this project, and it becomes a pretty complex. Um, soup, as I'm sure you're, you're very fully aware, when you have one set of public financing that might have 
requirements that are contradictory with another and how do you massage this whole collection of public financing to create the end solution, which is great affordable housing and great um, other asset classes, but do it in a way that um, is actually reasonable for uh, the developer at hand. Absolutely. And, and the one critical element as well, which we were able to tie into this deal was timing, right? Mm, so yes. once we're under construction, the town knows we're coming and we know we're coming and we have a lot of faith in that. And so tying in this case, adding the financial agreement that we have to Pearl's timing eliminated a big chunk of the question mark regarding their timing. Because again, affordable housing, a lot of it's based on calendar year. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stipulations to the timing and when you're on, in the ground and under construction, when you're leasing, there's there's a lot of challenges to that. Again, I'm, I'm not the expert in that. Someone like Pearl is, is certainly more well-suited in that, but it's, yeah. it's nice to know that our project helped contribute to that aspect again. And, and it's all running synchronous with each other, right? Mm-hmm. We're both under construction right now. They're probably going to be done and, and leasing up before we are, but not by much, right? So we're, we're working in this ecosystem together and there's a lot going on that's, that's mutually beneficial. So I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having one-of-a-kind designer, Jijun Young, on the show next month. His company, World Young, has appeared in Dwell, Wallpaper, Design, and Metropolis. Subscribe to this podcast now so you don't miss this episode or any of the other remaining ones in our spectacular second season. Go to AmericanBuildingPodcast.com and we have the links right there for you to head to Spotify, Google, iTunes, and a number of other podcast platforms. Redist is a technology-enabled company intelligently connecting real estate developers with the $100 billion of public financing given out every year in the United States. We collect, curate, and leverage big data, combining it with the expertise of our in-house team of real estate industry veterans. As the CEO, I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to ring the famous New York Stock Exchange bell, along with uh, Mayor Eric Adams of New York. If you're curious about what actually happens step-by-step behind the scenes at the Stock Exchange, when you're ringing the bell, you can check out my uh, LinkedIn page where I have the description uh, of that, and that link will be in the show notes. Finally, Sachs LLP is a full-service accounting firm with a special focus on the real estate industry. I'm a client of theirs, and I've been incredibly happy with their work. Their website has tons of educational resources available for free, along with their own podcast. Even I learned a few things about the nerdy and niche world of real estate tax. Check it out for yourself at SachsLLP.com. Okay, so let's go big picture now to understand how a famous, well-known company like Avalon Bay uh, approaches development. So explain to us how a development company is structured. Sure. So I will explain how we are structured, which I will be biased and say it's pretty productive. But uh, there's a couple of different ways to go about it. But we we prefer to have a more regional approach. So Avalon Bay is structured that we have our corporate headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. But we have a number of regional offices throughout the country in our core markets. So that's Boston, New York, New Jersey, metro area, mid-Atlantic, and then out at the West Coast, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., in addition now to other expansion markets, which Avalon Bay has more recently entered in Southeast Florida, Raleigh-Durham, Denver, and then also Dallas, Dallas and Austin. And so those last four that I mentioned, they were not a part of the company's strategy as, as recently as three four years ago. So we've been very cautious and very thoughtful again about what markets we're in and why we're in those markets. And 
we do that for a reason because to do everything that we do as a vertically integrated developer, which is develop, construct, we act as our own general contractor throughout most mm-hmm. of our jobs in the country and operate these communities in our local markets, we need to have that local knowledge on the ground on a full-time basis. So we're not fly-by-night developers. We're not just mm-hmm. kind of developers who say, I, I, you know, I, I cover this, this five or six state region. We're very thoughtful and targeted about who we have in our offices, making sure that they're hyper-focused on the local environments that we have there. So in my local New Jersey office, like I said, we have my development team. Mm-hmm. which has been there. We have uh, a lot of tenure going on. My my senior vice president's been with us for almost 20 years. My other vice president's been with us for over 10. I'm coming up on nine years myself, and my colleague has eight. So we've actually been, our core, our four set of four developers has been together for quite a long time, which is really a testament to how well we get to know these markets. And other offices have the same kind of longevity story. But what's great about our regional office setup is that when I have a construction question, or I'm trying to think about what product type might work here or what's the latest pricing on this type of thing, I go next door to my construction directors and project managers who are sitting at their desks, and I'm able to talk with them in real time about what my thoughts and concerns are. And if I have an operations questions, I go to the other side of the hall and talk Mm -hmm. to them about what they're seeing in terms of the maintenance costs for this and and how we can think about underwriting this type of deal and, and those kinds of metrics. So that really is... A strong suit of ours in Avalon Bay is that we're not, there's a lot of autonomy at the regional level. We have the tremendous benefits of all the things you could think of at a $35 billion market cap, you know, S&P mm-hmm. 500 traded company that are centralized in Arlington. All the finance capabilities I mentioned to you, mm-hmm. market research, design, accounting, whatever, you know, pick, your, pick whatever pill you want. All those corporate resources are there to help us. But honestly, the local teams get a lot of autonomy and a lot of trust, which is earned by the longevity of the people I mentioned to you being at the company for so long. We work very hard to keep that. And that's that I think is a, a unique benefit and aspect of Avalon Bay compared to a lot of other developers. So within a particular market, so be it Princeton or in, in Austin, where I am now, how do you choose where you are developing within this city? So both are sizable places and you have many choices and tell us how you go through that process. Yeah. So, you know, again, it, we're focused on our core markets. So in my case, that happens to be North and central New Jersey. So we kind of, my team at a high level, just having lived in New Jersey, most of my life as has my, uh, most of my colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. we know the ins and outs of those North and central Jersey markets specifically in New Jersey, what towns we like and don't like or what areas we like and don't like. So we have a pretty hyper-local focus that we're, we're specific to. So when deals come across our desk from brokers or, you know, hopefully more often from, uh, you know, from other, you know, closer networking contacts that we may have, you know, we, we do get a lot of first calls, thankfully. You know, we're able to make those quick decisions about what works mm-hmm. for certain sites, whether or not it's got good mass transit proximity whether or not it's located in a town that we would do anything to be in, you know, quite frankly, like a Princeton, or if we're able to ever find something in, in, in certain other towns throughout New Jersey, there are towns that we would kind of pull the trigger on no matter what, mm-hmm. if we're able to find something there. But through challenges of, you know, zoning or just lack of available land, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a lot of places in Bergen County where I'd love to yes. do a lot more, but Bergen County is split into over 70 municipalities that are, some of which are just, you know, couple hundred acres they're not they're not very large and there's not a lot of places to go 
So mm-hmm. it's it's us being pretty thoughtful when we see things come across our desk or trying to study what's going on in those local markets that we help make those decisions. And then, you know, that's just really at the market level. The next level down is then looking at the specifics of the sites that we're finding. Mm-hmm. And what about it? What about those sites makes it appealing? Again, as I mentioned, is it close to mass transit or close to a highway? Does it have a more of a secluded feel or is there something is there a neighboring industrial development that we don't mm-hmm. like? You know, all those kinds of things then come into it at that next level of analysis to help us decide whether or not it's worthwhile. And even and even then, it's not just always a you know thumbs up, thumbs down. Then you get into well, how much of a rent discount is that going to be to this comparable that was built five years ago that has these product types? There's a lot of nuance to that decision in that conversation, which is something we balance between our local knowledge and then what our market research group from Arlington is telling us about what they see in terms of future supply and other metrics mm-hmm. that may be coming down the pike for these various markets. So there's a lot of both you know, more macro and then you know the ultimate hyper-local decision-making for us to try and move forward on something. So say you now have an amazing uh, property in, in, the, in Princeton uh, or in, for example, East Austin, which is the hottest part of this city. How do you figure out what it is that you're actually going to be doing on this site in terms of the development? Good question. And, and I think it's a really good question because, again, this is a market where Avalon Bay is making a very targeted effort. And I've been involved on three projects in Princeton, all of which one of which is done, the completed Avalon Princeton property I mentioned, one of which is under construction, which is Avalon Princeton Circle, the project mm-hmm. we're mostly talking about today. And I have a third development, which is about a half mile away from Avalon Princeton Circle, which is actually located at the neighboring Princeton Shopping Center, which is another grocery anchored, uh, about a 220,000 square foot open air retail center located in Princeton, pretty unique in terms of its 1950s vintage and its kind of character and appeal to, to the yeah. locals in town, specifically for the location of the, of the grocer, which is a huge draw. So when you're looking at this market and you have not just one, but two new opportunities to develop in town, you know, we, we were incredibly giddy about the prospect of it. And then you say, well, how do we make them different, right? How do we mm-hmm. think through People maybe have a false conception of, of bigger builders like ourselves that everything's just kind of a cookie cutter project that mm-hmm. goes through a machine and we spit out 200 units. But if only they knew how much we talk internally about all these kinds of decision metrics. Mm-hmm. It's something we took a really deep dive on, right? Because it's a you have to look at the opportunities presented at each site. So the Princeton Circle project was again 13 acres net once we carved out the two for the affordable housing, which is a good sized site for a suburban density product. So that's why we're able to get that mix of the product types that we have in there because we had a little bit more land and existing impervious area with all those parking lots to redevelop. In the case of the neighboring Princeton Shopping Center community, it's located in the parking lot of what it's located in what today is the parking lot of Princeton Shopping Center, but it's only three acres. Mm -hmm. We have 200 units there on three acres, 221 on 13 on the other side. So naturally that's gonna lend itself to a much different product set, right? So in that case, it's a four story product located at the shopping center with a completely wrapped parking deck because we're actually parking our residents within the parking structure as opposed to out on the surface, like mm-hmm. we were in Planet Circle. And the one thing that I will, not the one thing, one of the many things I'll compliment Princeton on though, but what we were able to do in this redevelopment process, which I hope more towns move in this direction, is be really thoughtful about what we're doing in terms of walkability, bikeability, and 
vehicular parking requirements. Mm -hmm. New Jersey, as of today, it's not changing by the time you release this. But one day we will get New Jersey to change the state standards, which are very outdated in terms of parking requirements. Yeah. Basically, to round to round for your audience, New Jersey requires in the suburbs that every community park at about a ratio of 2.0 stalls per unit. So for normally, exactly, your, your eyes are bugging out on me. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of your listeners, maybe in more urban markets, are used to hearing parking maximums. In yeah. New Jersey, the, the, the state standard is treated kind of like a, it's treated like a minimum, but it's, it, it can be misinterpreted sometimes. But either way, it's essentially most towns default to this parking ratio. So you can imagine not just the climate change impact, just the space mm -hmm. impact of having to build or find space for that many dozens more parking spaces in these communities. So both Princeton Circle and the Princeton Shopping Center community are parked at a much more reasonable 1.5 spaces per unit, which is a ratio that we're still a lot, still a lot. But knowing the demand in the suburbs can fluctuate up and down is a manageable amount. We have good data from our existing Avalon Princeton asset that we can lower that state. We can lower the parking ratio off of the state standard and be very comfortable with the flexible nature of what we have for our residents to park. Because we know a lot of them are going to bike, a lot of them are going to walk, and a lot of them are going to not have to need two cars necessarily in that town. So by doing that and having, and I mentioned that as an aside, because that allows you the flexibility and design to think through the different product types that we have, right? So we mentioned the townhomes with an integral garage and a tandem, tandem driveway spot, excuse me. You have other units in that community that are then surface parked for the remainder. And then in the Princeton Shopping Center, you have a mid-rise building with generally smaller unit footprints, a lot more one-bedroom units there as opposed to Thanet Circle to help balance out what, when we look at the portfolio overall, what's our total unit count like? How many one-bedroom units do we have, not just here, but in total in the Princeton area? And so that was a very targeted and thoughtful conversation we had to have because we don't want to just make the same cookie cutter product twice. We, we don't want to make the same product twice necessarily. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have to be very thoughtful. And that goes without saying in, in all of our markets, but especially in the ones where either we have a good concentration of units or there's a lot of competitive properties that may already have done something, right? If we see in a certain market, they have a ton of larger two bedroom and three bedroom units that maybe aren't getting the same kind of rent per square foot. Well, we're not going to go chase that necessarily. That mm -hmm. part of the market's covered. We want to provide something that doesn't exist necessarily, but we want to provide the community that's near mass transit and no one's had an opportunity to live like that before. Those are the, the a lot, you know, a piece of the, the things that we think about as we move through the process in those types of towns. So let's talk about time. So what are typical timelines to do all these things that you're talking about on a project? For New Jersey, easily years, sometimes longer than that. No, I haven't, I, I haven't been around to work on anything that's taken a decade, but we have projects that have taken seven, eight years to go through entitlements. It's complicated and it's mm -hmm. tricky and it's a high barrier entry to market for a reason. It's difficult to find land. It's difficult to get entitlements. You know, it's not necessarily as difficult as other urban markets for getting building permits. That's almost, I don't want to say the least risky, but it's, you know, let's put that off to the side. But just finding the way through the legislation and the bureaucracy of New Jersey. And again, to remind your audience, it's not just you go, we want to develop something in New Jersey and you go to a larger county government or you go to the state government. 
New Jersey has 565 individual municipalities, each of which is their own kingdom. So all land use decisions are run at the local municipal level in New Jersey. So even if you get a site that's two miles away from another site, for example, you have a community in Hackensack, community in Teaneck, they're two miles apart, much different structure, much different governance, much different process. And so that's why, again, the hyper-local knowledge that we strive to, to obtain is to know the ins and outs of each individual town and really what they're looking for. So whether or not it's talking with local attorneys, uh, talking with other council members or other staff in those towns to kind of figure out what's appropriate for those markets is pretty important because the entitlement process for land that is not zoned, which is most of the stuff that we buy, is not already zoned and entitled for multifamily use. It takes that long to either go through the rezoning process, go through the redevelopment process, as I mentioned, which is a very public heavy process where you're going mm-hmm. through seven or eight different meetings between the council and the planning board at various stages in order to effectuate uh, the approvals. And that takes a lot of time and effort. And it's dependent, quite frankly, on the municipal calendar, which you know takes its own set of time because you're not the only developer in town who's trying to do something. You're not. You know, you can get stuck behind someone trying to put a deck on their on their patio at a public meeting. And you never know what you're going to get, quite frankly. So last question for you, uh, Matt, is help us understand about technology. How are you incorporating technology into your uh, day to day work? Uh, We have sister industries like automotive and aviation uh, that have been incorporating technology to a much greater extent than we have. And they've been doing it for much longer than we have. So we got some catching up to do. Tell us on the ground. What are you guys doing? You're telling me we we are doing quite a bit and trying to learn quite a lot in terms of what we're doing from a technology standpoint. Because, again, we have many dimensions by which to take advantage of existing technology. Obviously, I don't want to say the easy side, but the more tangible side that most people could understand is on the resident side. Right. So when you're living in an Avalon Bay unit nowadays or even when you're touring an Avalon Bay unit, you're dealing with a lot more technology than you used to. Right. So you get into the unit. You've got your smart thermostat. You've got the, all, all the other technological bells and whistles that are augmenting people's residential experience that they wouldn't otherwise have had in rental projects even you know 10 years ago. When you're coming to lease or tour in our communities, you're doing a lot more of that upfront and online than you ever were before, right? You're dealing with a lot of times we've, uh, quite frankly, more recently, and COVID being the biggest driver of this change, is self-guided touring, you know, giving people access through their latch hardware. You can come into our amenity space. You can view our club room, our leasing room. You can even view a vacant unit or the model unit that we have set up, right? So that that interface has completely changed how we're interfacing with prospects and with our active residents who live here. And, you know, pick whichever way you can think of, right? From, from package delivery to, uh, you know, having online FAQs answered, you know, through our our automated system now. I mean, there's there's a whole host of, of ways that we're dealing with technology on the resident front. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the bigger piece, which I think I think your, your comment is, is maybe most targeted at, you know, the, the development and construction industry, right, which is yeah. starved for technological innovation for, for decades, right? And I think we're really starting to see a lot of that come to fruition. And, you know, we don't, I guess the, the difficulty we have is trying to just figure out which horse to pick, right? It's It's not easy to know in this landscape where there are a lot of companies bubbling up and coming to the forefront, trying to figure out which one is right for us, right? So we're experimenting with a lot of different 
technologies on the construction side, whether or not it's it's been Procore or other innovative technologies, even just me getting Bluebeam Review, which was mm-hmm. like a, a life changer just for me, so I could pretend to be an architect, you know, in my in my day job. Little things and big things are going a long way, you know. And then it's it's on us as as a, as our company to try and figure out the right way to approach those technologies going forward because it's it's a difficult landscape. And we're trying our best to investigate. And we, again, on the corporate level, we have people looking at these types of things all the time, mm-hmm. trying to figure out the right way to integrate them into our communities, right? So it's been fun to watch. I have a lot of learning to do on the tech side, mm-hmm. but quite frankly, it's really exciting to see those changes, especially on uh, the construction side, which I think is going to do nothing but help us in terms of not just the speed at which we can build, but the quality at which we can build things, which... A lot of times is 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 not seen once the product once the drywall's up and everything's fitted out and people live there, you know mm-hmm. it's it, people don't understand the quality and the thought that goes into all the guts of the building behind the scenes. But we do, and that's as long term owners, we think really really hard about what we're doing behind those walls and why we're doing mm-hmm. it that way. And that's something we take a lot of pride in, and we're continuing to to look at ways to try and do that better. Excellent. So. On that note, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast Map. Listeners, if you want to hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience. And please follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team of Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Matt on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to build homes and communities. Today, Matt and I have made donations to the American Red Cross, which provides emergency preparedness and disaster relief across the world. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.